And welcome to this Australian Election Insight Special. I'm Philippa Tolley. Well, Australians are waking up this morning to a result which the polls got so wrong. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and his Liberal National Coalition have defied expectations to score a shock victory. The final result could still be days away, and it's still unclear whether the Coalition can govern with an outright majority or whether it will have to rely on a partnership of independent MPs in a minority government. What is clear is that it was a disastrous night for the Labour Party, which after six years of messy Liberal National Coalition government thought it was on track for victory. A dejected leader, Bill Shorten, conceded defeat and announced he would be stepping down. While there are still millions of votes to count and important seats yet to be finalised, it is obvious that Labour will not be able to form the next government. So, in the national interest, I called Scott Morrison to congratulate him. I wish Scott Morrison good fortune and good courage in the service of our great nation. The national interest required no less. This has been a tough campaign, toxic at times, but now that the contest is over, all of us have a responsibility to respect the result, respect the wishes of the Australian people and to bring our nation together. However, that task we won for the next leader of the Labor Party because whilst I intend to continue to serve as the member for Maribyrn, I will not be a candidate in the next Labor leadership ballot. Bill Shorten's defeat has given the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, a permanent place as a Liberal Party legend, returning the government in what was meant to be an unwinnable election. He took the stage at a Sydney hotel with his wife and two young daughters to claim victory, saying he'd always believed in miracles. How good is Australia? This is, this is the best country in the world in which to live. And it's those Australians that we have been working for for the last five and a half years since we came to government under Tony Abbott's leadership back in 2013. Scott Morrison had centred the campaign on himself and the economy, but still the election was Labour's to lose, and Queensland is essentially where it happened. For more than 12 months, opinion polls have predicted a Labour victory, and even senior Liberal strategists were not brave enough to predict a coalition victory. Bookmakers had already paid out millions of dollars of money, confident that a Labour government would be elected comfortably. Labour failed to win a single seat north of the Brisbane River and there were big swings to coalition MPs. Many senior Labour figures are already pointing to the impact of the Conservative minority parties for the losses. Here's the party's deputy leader, Tanya Plebisek. It's not the result that we'd hoped for in Queensland, obviously, and uh, when you look seat by seat, you see... Uh, One Nation and um, Palmer Party references flowing to the LNP up there. I think that that's going to take its toll. The Labour Party also had a worse than expected showing in Tasmania.
So as dawn breaks in Australia on the day after the night before, there are some big questions. What happened to Labour's campaign and what will happen to the party now as it faces the prospect of choosing a new leader? And how did the polls get it so wrong? We're joined now by correspondent Kerri-Anne Welsh. Good morning, Kerri-Anne. Good morning, Philippa. Well, Scott Morrison described it as a miracle. Was it a miracle? Well, not in a religious sense. It was certainly a political miracle. The... Uh, the polls, the opinion polling had not had the, the Liberal Party, the Liberal National Coalition in front since Malcolm Turnbull got the, election, got the Prime Ministership from Tony Abbott back some years ago. Uh, Prime Minister Morrison, his personal popularity had been quite high for some months, always ahead of Bill Shorten's. But the Labour Party itself and what it appeared to represent to Australians and what it looked like Australians wanted was the popular choice. There had never been a suggestion that there would be not just a result like this, but one that seems to be such an emphatic rejection of what Labor stood for. Now, as you pointed out in that that earlier package, uh, it is still unclear because there's a massive amount of of polls yet to be counted. I mean, the pre-polls alone run into the millions. Uh, So there could be between four and five million votes still to count. But the trend is very clear uh, that Labor simply has not been able to deliver what Australians want. Well, indeed, that pre-polling, Australians are allowed to vote for a number of weeks ahead of the um, actual election day. Uh, Is there any chance that those who choose to vote early could at all be of a different political flavour to those that vote on election day? Most definitely, because those who voted... Pre-polling had opened three weeks before... Uh, yesterday, so that means that a lot of the policies that had been rolled out, uh, the campaign launches, uh, this massive scare campaign uh, that was run against the Labor agenda, all of those sorts of things passed them by. So these were voters that obviously had made their minds up. They did not want to go through an election uh, hoopla. They didn't want to be assaulted with advertising every which way and politicians wandering in and out of their lounge rooms via the television set every night. They just wanted to switch off. Now, some suggestions have been made that those voters were more inclined to be conservative. I don't know where that comes from, but that was the general wisdom. Look, we've got a lot of um, you know, political analysts and commentators and those of us who've worked in this business for a long time need to really look at where the swings occurred. The biggest, obviously, in Queensland. Queensland turned quite savagely against Labor, but also in those other seats where... You know, popular candidates were expected to to win for Labor and they just simply haven't. So there's a lot of analysing to do yet. Well, I'm sure it will take very many weeks where people are chewing through this. But early on, I mean, what are various pundits saying? Everybody will have been up all night or for most of the night, actually, yeah. coming out with their opinion as to what people really just wanted stability. What was it that people in these early days think push people in this direction? Uh, Well, I think the two policies that uh, the coalition was able to exploit successfully that were offered by Labor were the so-called retiree tax, which actually wasn't a retiree tax, um, which was to uh, the franking credits policy, which... uh, is a policy that uh, the people who have self-funded retirees receive a 
credit from the government on their shares for monies they had not paid. In other words, a gift from the government. Labor was going to raise $5 billion a year on the back of that. Uh, it was dubbed the retiree tax by the coalition, despite the fact that it affected very few shareholders. Uh, and it took off as a real sore in the community. It scared people who were on the pension, despite the fact that pensioners didn't have shares and therefore they weren't going to be subjected to this franking. A lot of pensioners didn't have, have shares. So, you know, there, there, there was a lot of misinformation out there. The capital gains tax, for instance, that was able to be distorted in the community. Um, you so know, again, appealing to people's um, pockets. But look, nuts and bolts, when is the final result likely to be known? Because the Senate takes a long time to come in as well. When is the real final shape of the government likely to be known? Look, we'll get a clearer picture midweek. Uh, we'll get a better picture of the Senate by the end of the week. Uh, but certainly Scott Morrison will be going about trying to frame his new ministry and Labor will be addressing itself to what they're going to do to clean up the damage. Uh, particularly, they've got to elect a new leader. And that's not a simple matter. That has to, It's 50% uh, the parliamentary caucus and 50% uh, party members across the country. So that sort of ballot actually takes a number of weeks. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That was our correspondent, Kerry Ann Walsh. Well, it's been described as an American campaign with an emphasis on spectacle and photo ops, and both candidates had one eye firmly on the nightly television news bulletins. And voters weren't always in agreement with that kind of strategy. Mary wanted the debate to be not about individuals, but important policies. I would like to see a shift towards gauging our success as a nation by the quality of life of people. So that's why I pick issues like education and health and climate change. I've had an increasing sense of frustration at the decline in emphasis in policy, in short-term grabs instead of looking at how to make things actually really, truly better. This young voter, Maddie, wanted more of a focus on the classic issues of health, heart and pocketbook. Wage increases is a huge problem in Australia, so uh, the economy and um, sorry, our climate change is another uh, big issue for young people especially. Uh, one thing that hasn't really been talked a lot about a lot but um, Labor's commitment to um, allowing for access to abortions in public hospitals is a huge um, plus for I think a lot of young women and I think that ha having that commitment has just been basically decided my vote. But for voter Cindy, the most important thing was consistency. I think if the government keep changing, that's not really good for the country. So at least you let the party to consistent for certain years to make sure everything's on track before you change that. We didn't see like big issues we need to change from Liberal to Labour. That's what I thought. Despite three ministers and two terms of government, the election result has ultimately showed that jobs and fear of change were central to voters. Scott Morrison is now being credited with running a stunning campaign by demolishing Labour's big target policy agenda. In his victory speech, Scott Morrison paid tribute to the average Australian voter. We're going to get back to work for the Australians that we know go to work every day, who face those struggles and trials every day. They're looking for a fair go and they're having a go and they're going to get a go from our government. 
every single day. They are who we'll have right in front of us as we put in place and continue the policies which we know will keep our economy strong to guarantee the essentials that Australians rely on. Labor's Bill Shorten did not resile from his campaign of reform. What I have always loved about the Labor Party, and I still do, is the ideas that we champion, it's the people we empower, the people who count upon us, the people who need good, strong, reforming Labor governments. Gee, I wish we could have formed a government for these Australians on this evening. And the former Liberal Party Prime Minister John Howard said Labor's campaign to divide Australians had been to its detriment. And I did believe very strongly that Bill Shorten had overplayed his hand on the class warfare stuff. Australians believe in egalitarianism. They reject the politics of class division. And all this stuff about the big end of town and the envy-driven politics of the Labor Party have done them in big time in many areas. Well, for more on where to now for Australia, we're joined by Professor Jennifer Curtin, an Australian politics expert at the University of Auckland. Good morning. Good morning. Well, look, you've spent some time in Australia over the campaigning. How good was Scott Morrison's campaign? It was very strong in the sense that he was able to project himself as a leader and he, and he was able to transform himself from this um, hard-line border protection, treasurer um, model to a, a softer prime minister who could get out there in the suburbs, eat a democracy sausage, go to the footy and, and, and appeal to regular voters that he was strong and steady and then just took the focus away from his internal party politics, the divisions between liberals and conservatives and focus everything on this big target Labor um, policy platform. And I would say that the thing that Labor did was risky from the start in terms of having such a big range of policies, particularly ones that were big spend in place. But what it's what it's reminiscent of is actually Paul Keating's unwinnable election of 1993 when the Liberal um, leader, John Hewson, ran on a very big po- policy document and believed passionately that people wanted to hear about policy and it didn't matter that he was a little bit of a wooden leader and he lost drastically even though it was Liberals to win then. So so it kind of says something about substance versus style or, um, you know, that maybe it's risky for oppositions to make themselves a big target and they should do their policy work once they've won. And so while Scott Morrison was doing a good job of putting himself out there, I mean, they weren't putting out much policy, were they? Nope. Their their key policy message was tax cuts. Um, They're going for a flatter tax and they're getting rid of the top marginal tax rate of 37% and they're going to put a flat tax out there for everybody um, earning between 45000 and 200000 um, So they ran on that. Um, they had a, a first home buyers policy that they threw out there sort of two weeks out from the, the final vote. But pretty much it was all about you should vote for me where and for the Liberals National Party where good economic managers, that same mantra that we hear here in New Zealand on, for the centre-right, and then pretty much turned the focus for a scare campaign onto Labor. Even though the Australian economy hasn't exactly been soaring? 
No, but it's been steady and the books look good. And even though house prices are tumbling in um, Sydney and Melbourne, um, as we know from the results, this wasn't actually about Sydney and Melbourne, this election. This was about Queensland and Tasmania and possibly Western Australia. And and so it wasn't an urban election in that sense. It was very much a regional Australia election. And that goes to people worrying about jobs and mines. Again, it was in the headlines frequently in the run-up that one of the big issues for Australians was climate change and that big coal mine that is being proposed up in Queensland was very much the centre of a lot of debate. But in the end, people seem to care more about what's in their wallet than the climate change. Well, I I think that's a bit too binary because we know that the Greens did pretty well. They held their seat in Melbourne and they look like they're still going to keep their nine seats in the Senate, possibly, which is a pretty pretty good showing for the Greens. I think really what we're seeing here in terms of the the divide is that it's, it's not that people don't think climate change matters, but in Queensland, people weigh that up and go climate change versus jobs and and Labor equivocated on on the Adani mine. They didn't send a clear message on and they didn't have a policy on how they would replace those jobs. So we know, for example, that the Townsville seat was held by Labor by something like a margin of 0.02. So they really had to have a message for that area on what they would do if the mine didn't go ahead. Um, and, and they didn't have that message clear throughout the campaign. And if a political scientist like you, you were in Australia and looking at how everything was going, all the polls that were coming out, the polls were wrong and they've been saying the same thing for a long time. What does that say about polling? So the polls were tightening in the last week. So we got to, most of them were saying 51, 49%. In the end, it's actually pretty close to that. It's like 50 and a half to 49 and a half, something like that. Um, so we know that they were tightening. I think the other thing is, is that it's very easy to assume that there are uniform swings when we see these polls. Um, so the result in Queensland, um, really what's happened is it isn't the primary vote going to the Liberal National Party. It's the primary vote has gone to Clive Palmer's party and to One Nations, and then the transfer of preferences have fed through to the Liberals. That result in Queensland is actually within the margin of error of the polls that we saw. So really... The polls might be problematic because they do robo-calling and miss young people and so on. But it might also be that the interpretation of the polls was a little bit um, overcooked. And, and of course, we know that Bill Shorten was never as popular in the polls as preferred Prime Minister as Scott Morrison. And so, so maybe leadership over party identification trumped. And paying close attention to that slim margin. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That's Professor Jennifer Curtin, an Australian politics expert at the University of Auckland. And away from the leaders, there were hard-fought battles in a number of marginal seats and where independents were challenging or trying to hold on to their seats. Elizabeth Brown was following results as they came in throughout the evening. The first shock of the night came in the Sydney seat of Warringah, where the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's 25-year political career came to an end. He was beaten by the independent and former Olympic skier Zali Stegall by a large margin. Mr Abbott revealed that he'd feared his political career was over months ago, but said he would rather be a loser than a quitter. I'm certainly not going to let one bad day spoil 25 great years. I'm incredibly proud uh, of all that 
I've done. Obviously, there are some things that, with the wisdom of hindsight, might have been done differently and better. It was a good night for the independents, not only for Zali Stegall. The independents could prove vital if Scott Morrison ends up leading a minority government. Helen Haynes claimed victory in the marginal seat of Indi in a tight contest against Liberal candidate Steve Martin. She indicated there would have to be some big moves on climate change, one of the defining issues of the campaign, if she was to support the coalition government. I've made it very clear that in line with, uh, with the National Farmers Federation and many other people, I'd want to see 50% renewables by 2030 as a target. I want to see community energy being funded across Australia. I, I want to see a real action on climate that can, that can move Australia really forward. The recent turmoil within the Liberal Party didn't seem to translate to the ballot box. With five Prime Ministers in six years and the ugly leadership spill last year in which Scott Morrison replaced Malcolm Turnbull, many thought voters had had enough. But the Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, who sparked last year's leadership challenge and was expected to come under pressure in his marginal seat of Dixon, had a clear victory and he paid tribute to his leader. There is... An amazing mood across Queensland and across the country in support of the Prime Minister. And I want to pay tribute to Scott Morrison tonight for his leadership. I think he's provided amazing leadership. He's distilled our message down to one which the Australian people understand. He's been able to campaign in marginal seats. He's been able to put pressure on Bill Shorten, which is what Bill Shorten deserved. Another high-profile but often controversial politician also had no problems being re-elected. Former National Party leader and Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce easily retained his New England seat, saying the opposition parties didn't connect with rural voters. In this area as well, people are talking about their power prices. They want to know how they can get dignity in their lives by being able to turn on their fridge, by being able to turn on the toaster. This is the issue that resonates with them. During the election campaign, all eyes were on the man dubbed Australia's Donald Trump. Mining magnate Clive Palmer and his conservative United Australia Party appear to have failed to win a single seat, despite a $60 million Make Australia Great advertising campaign. But Mr Palmer is widely being seen as the Labour Party's wrecker in Queensland and he's claiming the credit for the coalition's win. We've saved Australia from a trillion dollars of extra taxes and costs. Bill Shorten always said he wanted to increase the wages of Australians. Well, how do you increase their wages? By taxing them to oblivion. Goodbye, Bill. Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party also re-emerged to capture disgruntled voters in Queensland and actually outperformed United Australia and most electorates it contested. While the final Senate count will take some time, One Nation's Malcolm Roberts and Jackie Lambie look likely to be returned. But their former colleague and controversial figure Fraser Anning has missed out. Call Elizabeth Brown, Tene. Morena, good morning. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to an Inside RNZ news special on the Australian elections with me, Philippa Tolley. No New Zealanders living in Australia will have voted in this election unless they've become Australian citizens, which not an easy thing to do. The group Kiwi campaigns for a better deal for New Zealanders in Australia, and anyone who arrived after 2001, even long-term residents raising children 
and paying taxes get little support from the Australian Government. Most are ineligible to vote, access social security or student loans. New Zealanders who arrived before February 2001 are classified as permanent residents. But the law change 18 years ago means anyone arriving since has been granted a special category visa which offers no pathway to citizenship. Kiwis Tim Gasson joins us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. Well, look, Labor was saying it would at least look at the pathway to citizenship and some of those other issues. But now with the coalition government being returned, is there any prospect of change? I think the prospect for change is quite limited under continuation of the Liberal National Government. That's not to say that change is impossible, and I think this is going to be an issue that the New Zealand government's going to have to focus on. I think major change is probably off the table, at least for the next three years, but there is certainly possibility to work. For example, the new visa that was introduced a couple of years ago, the 189 visa, that allows some New Zealanders who arrived between certain dates and are earning a certain amount of money um, to be able to get a permanent visa and then move on to citizenship. There is a possibility that could be extended. Dates could be changed. There could be some easing of eligibility criteria. And we certainly hope the New Zealand government will continue pushing on this. From a group like yours, you hear some very sad stories of people that end up in quite difficult situations. I mean, on the ground, can a grassroots organisation like you make much change at all? It's obviously limited what we can do. Um, and this is, I suppose, the problem of what's happened since 2001, that Essentially, grassroots groups have had to step in in both an advocacy role like ours, but also in terms of providing social services. That's not something we do, but others have had to do it. For the simple reason, there is no social safety net. You hear stories, for example, of women who are fleeing domestic violence, who can't find stable living arrangements, who aren't receiving any support to help their children and provide stability for their families, even though in some cases those children are Australian citizens. These are quite sort of remarkable situations, and I think this is also a point where the New Zealand government's going to have to keep pushing on and saying, well, realistically, if you are serious about in addressing some of these problems in your society, you, even if the Australian government's not willing to move on these broader issues, to look at some of these select issues and say, well, this is clearly a situation of unfairness, and can we do something about it? Well, given those sorts of stories, do you think there's any chance Australia will become less attractive for New Zealanders? You would think that might be the case, though historically when we've looked at migration trends, it doesn't seem to make a great deal of difference. I think the problem in some ways with what happened in 2001 is that obviously there's a still, still a great freedom of access for New Zealanders to Australia. For many New Zealanders who go to Australia, you'll settle there, you'll have a job, things will be going well, and this might continue for some years. And for some people that will continue indefinitely. But in some ways, people can't predict change in their lives. You might be able to plan relatively successfully for two years, three years, four years. Beyond that, no one really knows that people can lose their jobs. Circumstances change. They might become ill. And that's where things really hit people. And often when that reality hits them, it's too late to actually sort out their situation. Well, thank you very much for that. That's Tim Gasson from Key. Well, as part of his campaign, the Liberal leader Scott Morrison made a pitch to Indigenous voters saying if re-elected he'll make Indigenous youth suicide a focus of his government. The thing that focuses my mind most when it comes to Indigenous issues is I want young girls to stop killing themselves in regional remote communities. I can't tell you a more important Indigenous policy issue than that. It grieves my soul that young girls are killing themselves in remote Indigenous communities. And I will do everything I can to stop that. But Jackie Higgins, the co-chair of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, is less than enthusiastic about the track record of the previous coalition government. Just in relation to the, um, 
at a coalition, I think it's far too little too late at the moment. Uh, you know, we could have had uh, great strides in terms of uh, where we are positioned right now. Now, I must say, up until this present state, uh, that has been very glacial pace, and we haven't seen much, uh, if at all, any policy shift or direction within um, uh, the uh, coalition government, the present government at the moment. That was Jackie Higgins, the co-chair of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. Well, Paul Hamer has studied the plight of New Zealanders in Australia, particularly Māori, and he joins us now in the studio. Good morning. Kia ora, Philippa. Um, from your research, do you have any idea what the Māori community might have been thinking about these elections, what they might like as the outcome, or, or is there any sort of disenchantment given that the election involvement is very small? I, th- I think that's the main issue, that so few um, Māori and other New Zealanders who live in Australia are actually citizens, and so um, very few of them actually have a voice at the election. Um, there is some strong commitment to the Labour Party amongst some Māori working in uh, some unionised industries, heavily unionised, uh, the construction, forestry, mining, energy union, for example. But other than that, uh, there'll be a lot of disengagement and... Uh, as a result, probably a degree of apathy, I'm afraid. But the Māori population in Australia is actually quite significant, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, at the last uh, Australian census, it was 142,000 officially. It's probably understated for a variety of reasons. There's probably at least one in five Māori now live in Australia, so it's a very sizable uh, population. And it's a very extremely disenfranchised one um, with no pathway really to be able to have a voice in Australian politics at all. We heard in those cuts just before about some of the challenges that are facing Australia's Indigenous peoples. How easy is it to be Māori in Australia? Is it easy to hang on to culture? Well, there are obviously significant challenges, particularly in terms of the maintenance of te reo Māori, um, and that's an issue for the language in New Zealand as well, because what we find is a lot of people who have uh, ability as te reo speakers, uh, even who work as, as teachers of the language in New Zealand, will um, will move to Australia for, for work that uh, doesn't require those skills, um, but which pays a lot better. And so that's been an ongoing challenge. There's a kind of Māori brain drain to Australia, particularly where um, the Australian government is looking to, for people who uh, can employ working with its own indigenous communities that will often turn to New Zealand for that kind of help. And Māori are seen as the next best thing um, to employing Aboriginal people in those roles. Um, but it is it is a challenge, but there's a lot of fervour amongst Māori communities across Australia to maintain those connections. Um, I think for Pākehā New Zealanders who moved to Australia, they, within a generation, essentially will become white Australians, um, but for Māori, they're a kind of much more visible, enduring part of the New Zealand diaspora over there. And so um, there is a consciousness about being different, about maintaining that connection. There's a lot of travel to and across the, uh, to and across the Tasman to New Zealand. So, um, yes, it, it, there's certainly a maintenance of culture, but it's, it's always a challenge. For that community, you know, some of the policies of the um, the coalition government, the previous coalition government, such as the visa that returned those so-called undesirable citizens, those that had a run-in with the law, has that had a particular impact on the Māori community or indeed people's feeling about how they feel about living in Australia? 
Uh, well, I mean, as Tim has said, I, th- I think people don't really base their decisions about moving to Australia on those sorts of issues. I think there is a raised consciousness, but I think one thing I've found is that at the most Māori and other New Zealanders who've moved to Australia since 2001 have done so in complete ignorance of their lack of rights in Australia. And um, it, it wasn't really until about 2011 when New Zealanders were ineligible for any disaster relief from the Queensland floods that it became a really major issue of national attention in New Zealand and this flowed through to the communities in Australia. Because a lot Australia. of people didn't qualify for help, did they, after the floods? Yeah, that's right. And, and yet still... Uh, in the years after that, particularly because of the uh, Christchurch earthquake and other things, thousands and thousands of New Zealanders moved to Australia. It's always to do with economics, and the, the, it's a it's a kind of a cycle, and we'll we'll see it starting to pick up again in the near future, I'm sure. And it, it really doesn't come down to these basic rights issues, which leaves New Zealanders over in Australia very vulnerable. Thank you very much for your time. That's Paul Hamer. And as you've heard before, the independents could play a key role if Scott Morrison has to reach out in a minority government scenario. And Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is being blamed by Labour for the big losses it suffered in Queensland. To find out more about the performance and impact of the smaller players in this election, we're joined now by John Wanner, the Professor of Politics at Griffith University and the Australian National University. Good morning. Good morning, Philip. So were you up late watching it all last night? I sure was, and I saw the uh, opposition leader's concession speech, which was after midnight, which is things, I think it's about five hours ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting up early to speak to us this morning. So what about the um, performance and the results connected to those independents, which so many people were looking at? Well, uh, for, for New Zealanders, uh, the crucial thing to realise with this election was, you know, the government was going on its economic record, Labour was claiming there'd been cuts when mostly they'd been spending increases. Um, and the issue was, did Australians want a, a very sort of ambitious Labour Party with a high taxing, high spending? The two states that were very particular to this election was Victoria and Queensland. And that's where the coalition had a lot of vulnerable seats, at least 10 in, uh, in Queensland and about eight in Victoria. And mostly, apart from a couple, mostly they, they did not move. And in fact, in some of the Queensland seats, there was a massive swing towards Labour. In some of their marginal seats, 6% towards Labour. And they've been blaming well, Clive Palmer for this. I mean, he does this big multi-million dollar campaign. He's a big sort of mining man. How did Clive Palmer affect things? Well, that's, that's a little bit complicated. In elections up to this point in time, we've had, when the Democrats, which were a centre party, disappeared, we've had, and because we've got compulsory preferential voting, We've had Labour challenging the coalition, and the only other third party has been the Greens, and those would go to the Labour Party. This election is completely different. We've still got Labour and the coalition and the Greens, but we've had sometimes four of five right-of-centre parties, including Palmer, but including a, a guy called Fraser Anning, including One Nation, and most of those votes have gone back to the coalition. So this time, there's been... The, the minor candidates have been more conservative in their uh, orientation. Palmer is one of those. But let me tell you, Palmer, I haven't seen Palmer's vote um, very high in any seat so far. Uh, it, it's been a, it, it, he has had, you know, maybe, maybe one, maybe 2,000 in, in a seat. And remember, our federal seats are, are over 100,000 votes each. Um, you know, so it's not that big an impact. But, but the c- combined conservatives who did not vote Labour has probably saved a lot of coalition seats.
So that's down to the preference system that Australia has, where you actually, you know, you have your number one vote, but then you actually give a ranking to everybody else on the ballot paper as well. That feeds in and influences the results, doesn't it? Yes, and it's an equal vote. It doesn't, it doesn't deteriorate. So if you vote sort of uh, for a whole series of micro-parties, one, two, three, four, and eventually say Coalition 5 and Labour 6, your, your eventual vote will trickle down to the Coalition on 5, and that's still the equal first vote. So it's a, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not discounted as you, as you vote along. And, that's, and I think I, I looked at the Queensland uh, electorates, and I, virtually every electorate had nine candidates. Labour and Coalition, obviously, and then usually six or seven right-wing ones and the Greens. That was, that's been basically the picture across the country. Well, what about in the cities? We didn't seem to see any big change uh, or, and swings in the cities, as had been predicted in some polls. No, there have been two things that stood out. One, the Nationals have held all their seats. They haven't lost a single seat. And they've, to be honest, had a very lacklustre um, uh, leadership and they've had a lot of problems with Barnaby Joyce and the like as the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, they didn't lose any, any seats. In fact, they've held everything they've got. And in the cities, um, very little change. The one big news, which um, some New Zealanders will, will, will relish, is that Tony Abbott, a former Prime Minister, lost his seat of Warringah in Sydney to an independent, not to Labour. Um, and so he will no longer be in federal parliament. And just that issue of climate change, which was it was put sort of right up the top, that so many people were concerned, you know, even the, the rural areas, which might have been conservative in the past, um, because of this hottest summer on record, the really significant impact, that climate change was an incredibly important issue this time around. Does that seem to have played out in the election results? It, it did. Um, we started off the election with a very standard hip pocket nerve, cost of living uh, um, orientation. And that lasted a, a week, to maybe two weeks. And then in the, in the third and fourth weeks, two things started to come onto the agenda which hadn't so been sort of so much anticipated. One was climate change and only really um, reducing emissions as part of that climate change. It wasn't a broad agenda and both parties had, uh, and also the Greens, had competing policies. So the question was how much uh, emission, uh, emissions were uh, the parties going to advocate reducing, but there was no costing on it. None of that was costed. And the second thing that came in was religion. The, the Prime Minister is a Pentecostal religious believer, and his religion came in, and I'm not sure that that was raised by Labour. I'm not sure that played out well for them. Uh, a lot of people thought people's religions are their own personal affair, their own personal business. It's nothing to do with politics. So re religion almost unexpectedly crept into the campaign where no one really sort of designed it in as part of the campaign strategies. Look, thank you very much for your time this morning and again for getting up early. That was John Wanner, who's a professor of politics at Griffith University and the Australian National University. Well, what can New Zealand expect with three more years of a Scott Morrison-led government? There have been tensions over the number of New Zealanders being detained and deported, along with concerns over Australia's immigration policies, particularly around asylum seekers. Well, RNZ's political editor, Jane Patterson, is in the studio with us now. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. So, first of all, the big picture. How is this going to affect the relationship between New Zealand and Australia? I think if you were going to ask um, the New Zealand Prime Minister or Prime Minister's past, they always say that they would work with Australia, whoever was leading the government, and we have seen that in the past. Well, they would say that, wouldn't of they? Of course they would say that. Um, but depending on um, the the leaders and the rapport, that is tends to be more important often than the actual what side of the aisle you're on. We've seen um, right-leaning versus left-leaning governments in Australia and New Zealand, and the leaders get on well. Um, what is consistent... Um, 
are the niggles, and in recent times they have been the 501s or the New Zealanders um, kicked out of Australia with criminal pasts, and also, of course, that ongoing um, offer that has been rejected um, from successive Australian Prime Ministers over New Zealand taking uh, refugees from now Nauru um, and offshore processing centres. And is that likely to change at all? I mean we had just before the election we had the news come out that in that swap with the US that some uh, um, from those detained in the Pacific gone to the US and Australia have taken those um, two individuals who have been involved in the attack in, on the tourists in Uganda where two New Zealanders very sadly died. I mean, is that going to change the colour of those negotiations, do you think? I don't think we're going to see any difference because, of course, the incumbent government in Australia will carry on and will carry on, as we heard from Scott Morrison, with very much um, an extension and continuation of its policies. I think the really interesting thing about this election was that we were looking at the the counter um, outcome, which would have been, of course, with a Labour government, and there were quite significant differences on a lot of those topics under Labour and what Bill Shorten had talked about. And uh, one of those is the acceptance of that offer from New Zealand. He'd indicated that um, under the ALP then the government could look at accepting the offer, closing those um, settlement centres down, closing Nauru down. Um, Of course that's not going to happen. And the other one that really affects New Zealanders in Australia, um, and one of our former guests was alluded to it, about um, how Labour would have taken a more sympathetic um, view towards New Zealanders, particularly the long term. pathway to citizenship. That's right. So not anything specifically in their policy it was referred to in Bill Shorten's speech to the Lowy Institute last year, but certainly um, suggesting a much more sympathetic. Now interestingly too, the Liberal Party in its election uh, policy refers specifically to making the uh, broadening out the ability for Australia to kick out uh, non-citizen criminals. So it it became a very gnarly issue under John Key. Um, It sort of has died down because the the New Zealanders who were to be sent out were were, um, deported. But now there's talking about new legislation that would make it um, possible for them to continue that policy and I'm sure a lot of New Zealanders will be scooped up in that as well. So that is one thing that will change potentially under this um, Scott Morrison-led Liberal Certainly Party. Certainly watch. Look, thank you very much for your time this morning. That was Jane Patterson, RNZ's political editor. Michelle Grattan is the chief political correspondent for The Conversation and also teaches politics at the University of Canberra and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Well, what are the immediate challenges for this new government? Well, I guess the, uh, the challenge is to really get a, an agenda for the coming term because in this campaign it's really been all about don't vote for Labour. Uh, as we've just heard, it's been very negative from uh, the government's point of view and it hasn't really outlined much of what it plans to do except, of course, its tax program. And what about stability? I mean, this has been such a feature of Australian politics, hasn't it, in the past few years. Um Scott Morrison being able to take his his government into another term, is this going to bode well? 
It is amazing that the Australian voters have uh, once again uh, delivered a, a very close result and that's not good for stability. Both parties have changed their rules in recent times and therefore the Prime Minister who wins the election is uh, guaranteed more or less under the rules to go through the term. Of course, rules can be always altered again, but that is uh, one uh, mark for stability and, and that's a good thing. But we still don't know, of course, whether the coalition will be in majority or minority government and that will make a difference as to how stable things will be. There was an awful lot of talk also about Australians and their declining satisfaction with democracy. After this election, how do you think Australians are going to be left feeling? More, is their attitude going to improve or is it going to be more of the same? I doubt that their attitude will improve. I think that uh, people really are very disillusioned with politicians and the whole political process. This isn't unique to Australia. We see it in other Western democracies. Uh, But there's not really much in this result to make people more... Uh, trusting of politicians, I don't think. Uh, And really, we're going to have to see changes in the way politicians behave, I think, before you'll restore that trust. And and that's going to take a while. And the campaign itself really didn't uh, give any sign that that change is, is going to happen anytime soon. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That's Michelle Grattan, the Chief Political Correspondent for The Conversation. And that's all from us. I'm Philippa Tolley. Thanks for joining us for this RNZ News Insight election special on the Australian elections. And you can hear more on the results and all the implications on Midday Report.